Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we're here with Dr. John White, a popular physician and writer who has been communicating to the public about health issues for nearly two decades. And recently, he has become a friend of Daily Remedy. He is the Chief Medical Officer of WebMD, and he leads efforts to develop and expand strategic partnerships that lead to meaningful change on important and timely public health issues. Prior to WebMD, he started as the Director of Professional Affairs and Stakeholder Engagement at a Center for Drug Evaluation and Research at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, FDA. He's the author of Take Control of Your Diabetes Risk, which is now available for sale. And with that, I'd like to welcome Dr. White. It is great to be with you and congratulations on your terrific work. I, I love your, your posts and your content. It's, it's a great mixture of health policy many times as well as content. You're doing a terrific job and, and it's really an honor to be with you. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. And I enjoyed reading your book. And I think that it's very timely in that it is something that's both knowledgeable and actionable. And I think that it gravitates to different types of readers. As I had mentioned to you, my parents are diabetic. And one, my father, he's a reader. And my mother, she's less so. But they both found value in the book based off of the different chapters and what was controlled and what was discussed in the chapters. And that's kind of like where I would like to start because I, I want to get a sense of what you hope readers will gain in reading this book. Uh, this is now the second in what seems to be a series of taking control. So can you tell the audience what you expect or what you would like the uh, readers to get out of this book? Sure, and, and you hit it on the nail. It is meant as a series about taking control of your own health, empowering you with the knowledge that you need to take action. You know, we had talked about, you know, cancer risk and in many ways, people think that's just genetic. Most of it isn't genetic. It's the same thing with diabetes. There are some genetic variants, type two, 90% is related to obesity, but people will say it both ways. Oh, you know, my parents had diabetes or my grandparents, so I'm at risk or they say it the other way. Well, no, there's no diabetes in my family, so I don't have to worry really genetics plays a very small role. It's really about lifestyle. And even when you have that family history, it's usually because you share the same behaviors in terms of your eating style, in terms of whether or not physical activity is a part of your daily life. But what I want it to be different about, and I still see patients, as you know, too many of my physician colleagues will say to patients, you need to lose weight, you need to eat healthy, you need to go to the gym. How does that help anyone? They need actionable steps. Because I've learned over 20 years of seeing patients, they say, Dr. White, tell me what to do. And it's not always being as prescriptive as, you know, you have to do this, 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 but it's also about giving them options, helping to educate them, empowering them, recognizing that much of your health rests with your own daily decision-making. And, and that's where I wanted to give people that good information that they can take action on. In the book, you are keen to get into the details on certain aspects of diabetes, but you're also keen to keep it personable and relatable. As you talk about certain aspects of the disease, like for example, complications of diabetes, how did you find the balance between discussing the clinical consequences 
but also making it understandable and relatable to the patients as they're reading. You know, I have to say you're a terrific reader because all the things you're pointing out is what I've struggled with. So I actually have struggled over the years in terms of where do I find that balance? And I've written a couple of books. So early on, I always wanted to give the data because that's typically what doctors do. And I was interested in that and talk about the studies. And then at the end, you're like, oh, here's what you need to do. And I've learned from some great editors, you need to flip that a little. That's why I start with these Q and A's at the beginning, these true false things to kind of whet your appetite. We like to think we want to be a storytelling in health, but what happens is we lose people if we give them too much data. And what I've also learned, patients come to me or even they come to WebMD or they come to you because you're an expert in that area and they presume, hopefully correctly, that you know what you're talking about. So they don't need to know all the data, all the studies. They want to know what they need to do. But what I want to do is kind of give them some of that balance, talk about some of that data, how diabetes is the number one cause of blindness in the United States is diabetic retinopathy, how it impacts your retina. So I try to give just a little bit. I spent a lot of time on you know, the lifestyle issues for pre-diabetes. And I talk about this big diabetes prevention trial. So it's really that balance where I want to give them the scope. Hey, they studied several hundred thousand people in several countries, you know, over, you know, many years, just so they can also go if they want to. And, And, you know, someone else said to me once they appreciate it, I put all the references in there too. So, yeah, you know what, if you want to go look them up and you disagree with how I interpret it, you can. But most people want to take action. You know, I've learned this through what we do at WebMD. Five years ago, everyone just searched, right? Search content, maybe they print it up, give it to the doctor, and the doctor really wouldn't pay that much attention to it. Now you search content, you want to do something about it. Do I need an x-ray? Do I need a medication? Do I need to see a specialist? And let me do that today or tomorrow. So it's all about finding that balance. I probably still have too much (laughs) science in the textbook, but uh, I I really wanted to give practical advice. And and that's what I've tried to do. It comes across, particularly in the quips and the humorous lines that you've put in. How much of that was you thinking, here I am talking to a patient as opposed to here I am the author writing? There's no ghostwriters. So I write it myself. And the the greatest compliment I've received from people is similar to what you just said. They say to me, it sounds like you, like I knew (laughs) that was you. Now I struggle sometimes with the editor. Uh, They don't always like my quips, (laughs) (laughs) my comments, but I wanted to add that in. We don't have to take everything so seriously Mm -hmm. about our health. Diabetes is a serious condition. But at the same time, we need a little bit of levity. So the way that I write is actually as if I'm talking to someone. And then I just have many iterations of it. I'm always thinking about it. So, you know, even while driving or while traveling, I'm thinking about this is how I'm going to revise that chapter. Or this is how what I've learned today from talking to a patient about, uh, she eats a lot of uh, snacks. She eats a lot of, what did she tell me? Oh, um, she's like, I'm eating 
a lot of nutty buddies at night. And instead of criticizing her, you know, immediately and saying, what are you doing? I'm like, nutty buddies? They still have nutty buddies? (laughs) I'm like, I haven't seen those in years. And and we laughed and, and we created that relationship to say, you know, you need to cut back. And I will tell you, she did. I I saw her (laughs) a month after that. And she's like, you know, I stopped all the nutty buddies at night. And I thought that's much better than saying, oh, you can't do this. You can't do that. And it's also a recognition that being healthy and being happy are not mutually exclusive. People tend to think, oh, if I have to eat healthy or live a healthy lifestyle, I'm not going to enjoy it. That's not true at all. Food is an acquired taste. There's lots of physical activity things that you can do, but it's, it's making that effort. Yeah. It's interesting how you phrase that because in many ways you personalize diabetes in this book and you discuss the good and the bad, and you almost make it part of somebody's life. Mm -hmm. And in your experience as a clinician, and it clearly shows in your personality, the way you see patients, the personal aspects of the disease seem to weigh more in the overall care and the overall management than just the facts or just the hemoglobin A1C. Absolutely. You have to meet people where they are. And I think one of the reasons why the book has been resonating is because I see patients. I've been doing it ever since I left medical school. So I hear what's on their mind. I understand their frustrations. And that's why I like to give these patient stories in terms of what people are talking about to me that I think are representative of other people. And it's a struggle because no one wants to have diabetes. No one wants to think about the complications. And there can be a lot of depression and anxiety with the diagnosis, especially early on, but I don't want that to cause inaction. The other day, and you may have seen this, there was an article about CBD gummies curing diabetes, and it was resonating on the internet. And I thought, and I wrote about it because I I wanted to remind people, you know, deep down, that doesn't work. There's no magic (laughs) pill, but people are looking for that kind of quick, easy fix, or at least what they perceive as a quick, easy fix. And as Doctors, we don't talk to the patients enough about, especially in pre-diabetes. If you make these changes, even for type two diabetes, if you lose 7% of your body weight, that's what most of the studies have shown. You often can bring your blood sugars back to normal. Wow. Now that takes work, Yeah. but why wouldn't you want to reverse or at least put in remission type two diabetes or yeah. pre-diabetes to avoid those complications? And everyone always thinks it's not going to be them, right? Like I'm not going to be the one that's going to develop problems. Most people do develop problems. And what I have found, the things they really complain about are their neuropathies, this tingling and numbness, that pain in the fingertips and and the legs. And and that's really hard to treat. And I I don't think we talk enough about that to, to people and then empower them as you and I have been talking with the knowledge for them to make good decisions. I think it's interesting you've put it in that way and thinking in that manner allows you to see things that perhaps may be glossed over in both the traditional clinical settings and in health policy. And I want to focus now on specific aspects of the book that I think are particularly relevant. Uh, In chapter seven, 
you emphasize the stress and mental health associated with diabetes, which is something not too many people have discussed, but I really, really like the way you went into length and that issue. Why is it important to you? And why should it be more important to patients who are struggling with diabetes? We always talk about food and food is medicine. And I spent a lot of the time in, in the book about what foods to eat, mm -hmm. et cetera, and activity. But for the past two years, and I think COVID has really crystallized it for me, there is no physical health without mental health. Mm -hmm. There's a mind-body connection that we ignore. And this is where, back to your original question about balance, how yeah. much do I put in? Because people be like, oh, really stressed, that impacts my blood sugar. It does. And there's a physiologic reason. It's primarily the release of various hormones, such as cortisol, mm -hmm. which is causes inflammation. Stress really is a disease of inflammation and inflammation is bad just when you have it in your joints. But cortisol also raises your glucose level. So it, it all makes sense that you have these persistent elevated blood sugars, and then it's impacting your cells to be able to absorb insulin, uh, which allows you then to absorb glucose. So there's a reason why chronic stress, that daily stress is going to impact your ability to control your blood sugar. We tend to ignore it and we don't focus on it, but it plays an important role. And that's why I wanted to spend time on it because we never really focus on that mind-body connection that we need to acknowledge. I think in chapter nine, when you discuss the specific impact of stress with diabetes, really made clear a lot of these correlations that are mostly understood clinically, but not really explained well to the public. You do a great job discussing blood pressure, stress, fight or flight, and diabetes. Mm. Why do people not see diabetes in terms of stress like they do hypertension with stress? That's a great point. Yeah. Because people know in terms of when you get angry, your blood pressure rises. And when they come to the doctor's office and they're nervous, their blood pressure rises, white coat hypertension. Diabetes, we don't talk about it. We, we yeah. simply tell people it's sugar. And it's just not sugar. It's primarily obesity for type 2 and basically the hormonal aspects. We forget fat is metabolically active. It's yeah. releasing hormones. And it's also messing up our hormones in terms of how they respond. But as doctors, we basically say it's sugar or the public believes it's just eating sugar. Well, it's not. And if you stopped eating sugar and you just ate fatty foods all day, you're still going to gain weight and develop type 2 diabetes. So doctors sadly aren't often trained in the mental health aspects of diabetes and hormonal issues. And we need to pay more attention to that. And, and I, I think we're making some progress. And truth be told, I think you're doing a great job in leading that progress. This is now the second time uh, in so many books that you've devoted an entire chapter to sleep mm -hmm. as a part of disease management and really emphasizing the hormonal components to sleep that a lot of people, even in the medical field, seem to overlook when caring for patients. And that's where I put some of those studies in to show exactly. that I'm not making it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think it's interesting because particularly in medical school, when we are taught about sleep, it's really one lecture in one day at the first year of medical school. And then you kind of just call it. 
Uh, I, I think now sleep is becoming more acknowledged and the hormonal balance in sleep metabolism is now recognized as a key component in chronic disease management as well. It's crazy when you think about it. We do it every day. Mm -hmm. In some ways, people think, oh, that's why it's not that important. We do it every day. But I'd argue that's why it's so important. Yeah. We do it every day and you need to do it right. And we need to put a priority on it. All throughout life, early on, we, we especially in medical school and in our work life, sleep's the first thing we get rid of yeah. when we have important tasks or what we perceive as important tasks. And I always like to remind people if they have kids, how did you feel when you couldn't sleep because your child, your infant was always waking up, right? You mm -hmm. felt lousy the next day. You felt lousy those first few weeks and months. Well, imagine how your body's responding when you feel that way for years. Yeah. That that's the real issue that they don't focus on that way. And it's hard because it's, you get in this phase where it's hard to fall asleep and you develop poor habits and then you get stressed over it, right? You wake up at two o'clock in the morning and you're like, oh my God, it's two o'clock in the morning. I need to wake up in four hours, five hours. How do I fall asleep? And it takes a lot of work. And all too often we're quick to say, here's a pill. Yeah. And I'll tell you in 20 plus years, I've written sleeping pills probably twice mm. because I know the long-term impact is going to be a major problem. And what's interesting is in your book, you devote, I think it's, early on some component to the medications itself. But for the most yeah. part, you're discussing behavioral management, mm -hmm. mental health issues, all the things about diabetes management that affect everyday lives, but are not really the tried and true things that we go to see a physician for. I agree completely. The payment mechanisms, let's be honest, are I've got 15 minutes to see you. It's easier to write for a prescription right for metformin, right for a GLP-1, then to say, hey, these are the things you need to do. Doctors aren't often trained well how to do that. Yeah. I talk about in the book, I wish we would write an exercise prescription. This is what you should be doing. Then people would take it more seriously, perhaps, yeah. or to provide menus and, and talk about, but that takes work. The reality is in the long run, that's going to have a much bigger impact, but mm -hmm. we don't think about it that way. And that's why I think there needs to be changes to the way that, you know, we pay for, for diabetes care. It, it, you allude to that in the conclusion when you begin with this uh, clever road trip analogy where you discuss, <laughs> uh, which I thought yeah, it's really a journey, nice. yeah. you, uh, you discuss the role of a family support system and an engaged physician. And mm -hmm. you, you are essentially discussing how the incentives need to be aligned properly, that a physician needs to focus on the behavioral aspects of diabetes as much as the medications. And if not, then you should question that relationship. Do you absolutely do you see uh, patients now leading the charge and kind of realigning that relationship? Not so much. You know, I wish it would be better. So I don't see patients every day of the week. Often I see other people's patients and they will say to me, you know, my doctor doesn't answer my questions or my yeah. doctor, you know, doesn't spend enough time with me. And I do tell them that they should change their doctor. Often people are deferential and they feel like they don't want to question the doctor. I always say to patients and to my own patients, you don't leave until all your questions are answered. So yeah. you just sit down. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Stay down until, but you know, I learned that last chapter went through various iterations about yeah. the journey, but 
But that's my experience from working with patients. Mm -hmm. Because what I know, I can tell them to eat healthy and do this or that, but they'll often say, well, my husband likes this food or my kids like this food. Cause I'll be like, why are you buying chips? You know, you're not supposed to be eating them. And they'll say, well, other people or the people that have been more successful is when their significant other are also doing the same mm. healthy lifestyle yeah. changes or recognizing, you know, their, their work responsibilities or others. So it is really a community of people. It's just not you. And, and I recognize that from talking to people as, you know, in my own experience of, you know, gaining weight over the COVID pandemic and, and trying to change it. I did say to my wife the other day, you have to stop buying these butter cookies. <laughs> I mean, they, are, they are delicious. And it's very hard to resist, you know, be right. honest. So now I'm like, well, maybe I'll only have one in the morning. <laughs> just one. instead of you know one a couple times during the day uh but but that's the point people need to become more empowered i think there's some generational issue where older patients tend to be more deferential they like to stick with the doctor that they've had for a long time even if they don't like them too much younger people are kind of more episodic and mm. transactional. They come in for something specific. They're more willing to change. They want to have more discussion. They want to talk to me about intermittent fasting. They want to talk to me about paleo. Uh, and, and I try to redirect them to, it's about patterns of eating. It's about where are you going to be five years from now, not five months from now. And that's a mindset change for people too. But then you also have to think about periodic check-ins and how do we use the new digital tools that are out there? You and I have been interested yeah. in that topic to empower people. What I love about them is they empower you yeah. with your data and your information. And then how do you work with others? This is the whole point of a journey and community and partners to help interpret it. So I like it when patients come in with their blood sugar measurements. A lot of other doctors don't because they don't have the time to look over it. I look over how their weight has changed over time. The great thing about the clinic that I work at is we check weight every time. So I know an imbalance and, and people will say, oh, you know, I had my keys in my pocket today. <laughs> I'm like, okay, okay. Like you're closed every time. Yeah. And we're looking at trends, right? Yeah. So your clothes don't weigh 10 pounds. Yeah. Uh, but, but the point is it's, it's the trends. It's not yeah. that point in time. And it's that periodic feedback and it's doing it all in a mutually respectful way and empowering people, not talking down to them, not telling them this is how you have to do it. There's multiple ways to get healthy. And that's what I talk in, in the book. Here's a framework to take control of your diabetes risk. Here's how you can think about exercise. It's funny in the menu plan, mm -hmm. you know, I debate it, you know, with the editorial team, they're like, well, some people like to eat everything for the every day the same for breakfast. That's what I do, primarily oatmeal, sometimes some variations. But I say in the book, I'm just giving you choices. So I'm giving you 40 different yeah. you know, breakfast options. So you find the one or two that you like and yeah, you stick and so with that. For the audience, that is a chapter five when it goes into the detail on the various meal plans itself. What's interesting about that is you break it down into patterns of behavior. You talk about recipes, you talk about purchasing various ingredients, and then you talk about the meal themselves. Yeah. Right. Why I did talk you... about the prep. I talk exactly. about the prep. What I learned over the years in writing books, people said, I want a grocery list. See, they want the yeah. specifics. So I learned 
I make a grocery list. They want the recipes. They don't want the recipes there, not at the end of the book. So I've learned a lot from talking to readers and listening to readers and, and talking to patients, understanding what they want. So back to your point, they don't want to read all the studies. They want that right. grocery list, right? So now they want yeah. to make it. They want that recipe. And I would joke early on, I'm not always the most precise chef, yeah. <laughs> but, but in a cooking recipe section, you have to be precise. That's exactly. what the editors would tell me. Do it exactly how you do it. I was like, I got to throw everything in, yeah. uh, but it, it works out. And, and, and I've been posting some pictures and I'm like, it doesn't have to look perfect either. No. No. This has to taste pretty good. Exactly. And it's interesting that the chapters themselves cater to specific behavioral elements for patients. As I mentioned to you, my parents, they're both diabetic, used the book in different ways. You know, one used it to read and gain knowledge. The other one used it to implement practical exercises and cooking techniques in their daily lives. As you're reading this, and as you've mentioned, you're gaining feedback from the readers and the patients as you're writing this. Uh, do you have an ideal uh, version for how patients would use this book or is it almost the, the best version is the version that's best for the patients? I hope people use it as a reference and yeah. come back to it. So they get a better sense of what they can do to take control of their risk it kind of separate the facts versus myths. There's a lot yeah. of myths around type two diabetes and then go back to it over time to say, Hey, I'm going to try these different recipes or let me see what he talked about in terms of exercise. And people will be like, Oh, well, all this information is on the web. You know, why should someone pay money nowadays to buy any type of medical book? Yeah. I think the difference is the style of writing. I think it's curating everything yeah. all in one place rather than you have to go search. I mean, Recipes, I like having them out in, in a recipe stand and, and being able to do it versus a pad. Everyone's a little different, but you also want information in one source that's readily available. And, and, and that's, patients will use it in different ways. And I welcome that. And I welcome people's feedback. I welcome their uh, book reviews. Mm -hmm. I always want to, you know, get better. And I appreciate the ability to talk to, to you and others about what people can do to take control of the risk. Diabetes is really, you know, an epidemic in, in many ways in terms of the number of people that have it. 10% of the population, nearly 40% of the population has prediabetes. There's a lot of work we need to do. Yeah, and I feel that your book is doing a lot to advance that work. Uh, before I, I let you go, Dr. White, I uh, want to first and foremost thank you for your effort in creating this book. It's a worthwhile read for anybody who has diabetes or is at risk of getting diabetes. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. Bye-bye.